Hello, welcome to Process. My name's Stephen Walsh. This week, we're going to be talking to Katrina Chapman. Hello, Katrina. Hello. <laughs> so, Katrina, you come from background in children's book illustration. Yes, that's right. Do you think there's a relationship between your work there in terms of using words and pictures together and the work you're looking to do in comics? That's an interesting question. Um, I was talking to someone just the other day about how different it is and how much more I've had to start thinking about in terms of the page design and things and the panels and the speech bubbles because a, a picture book is basically usually a double page spread, one image and maybe one or two lines of text and with a comics page you've got an awful lot more to take into consideration. So I've been trying to get my head around that. There's an awful lot more to think about in terms of leading the eye across the page and things. It's a lot more complicated. And so, yeah, someone that's just kind of starting out making comics, that's been quite a lot <laughs> to think about, just where to place the text, whether to put it above or below the image and just things like that. And then you, you do a few kind of pages and then you look back on them and think, right, that really didn't work because that bit that you were supposed to read there, you read after because it's not on the right, you know, in the right place. So, yeah, there's, I think there's a lot more to think about and that I'm just starting to get my head around that kind of thing. With illustration, a lot of it is about encapsulation, isn't it? It's about picking the right image that fits perfectly. Because, you, because you've only got one image to play with on the page, it is a, mm -hmm. a, a way of, of choosing the perfect moment to capture on that page, which then I think would help in terms of individual frames, if not the comic page itself. Yes, yeah, but I think, I think that's kind of the distinction is that I'm, after doing a couple of little short stories that... I'm feeling like I really need to look at the, the overall page now because I was very focused on what was in each panel and not so much how they work together across the page. If you're doing a kid's book and it's one illustration on the page, it's quite easy to compose that and that's really natural to me to kind of think exactly how it should look and who should be you know, looking in what direction and stuff. But when it's sort of nine panels or 12 panels or something, there's a, I've, in the stuff I've done up till now, I've kind of stuck bits in each panel and I've kind of designed each one of those and then looked at the page and thought, uh, I, wish, <laughs> I wish I'd thought more about how to kind of arrange these so that there's some kind of design. I'm working on a short story at the moment, a five-page story, and that's my goal with that is to look more at that side of things. I really like comic artists that, that design the page really beautifully and kind of use the text and the placement of the text and things. So that's a whole new thing that I'm trying to get my head around. Is there anyone in particular who you think does that well? I love uh, Christina Basinski's work and um, she's, yeah, just beautiful designs, really interesting lettering. Andy Poyad, she does some fantastic kind of page designs. So yeah, stuff like that, I mean... Yeah, just thinking more about how the overall thing is going to look. Because you're given so many more tools to play with, aren't you, with, with comics, as you say. And it's something that I think people forget about a lot of the time, that the text itself and the purpose it can have. It's conveying information, but of course, with comics, you have the option of it becoming a decorative, incorporated part of the visual look. Yeah, I mean, uh, one thing that's just occurred to me that is, is a skill that I learned in the children's book stuff, which is that you you have to work on trying to make the text and the images do different things and that you can get interesting kind of meanings out of that. So that that is the same kind of skill. But So say so your background is illustration and you're looking to move into comics. Mm -hmm. You've done a couple of transitional pieces. I mean, you did a book called Broccoli Foxtrot. Is, is you know, a, 
illustrated book, but has comic elements of it. It has sort of panels almost and transitions. Yes, and... yeah, yeah. That was my, my first little <laughs> tiny attempt to kind of do bits of comics. Uh, and then I did, the next thing I did was just a two-page story for Tiny Pencil, which was a, an anthology that I helped to create last year with Amber, Sue. Um, and because that was just two pages, that was quite a nice way to get into it. And then I did a 10-page story for, for David O'Connell for Ink and Paper. And that was good practice, but that was quite a straightforward, that was just a sort of diary comic. So there wasn't so much in the way of kind of writing with that one. So, yeah, I'm still, I'm still kind of learning. <laughs> and your Scotland diary comic as well. It was oh, a longer yes. piece again, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that was just a, an experiment in speed and trying to work quickly because that's not my natural <laughs> tendency. So with that one, I was inspired by um, people like Simon Morton who do very sort of very minimalist drawings and I thought well it would be interesting if I took that as an inspiration to see how many pages I could do just while I was actually on holiday <laughs> I was writing about my trip to Scotland and so I just kind of aimed to do like a four or five page section um, every day for a week um, so that was quite interesting it's nice to find out what you can do if you actually kind of speed yourself up and set yourself some boundaries It does seem like you've had very measured sort of incremental transition from illustration into comics with as a broccoli foxtrot bridging the two and then you say the shorter pieces two pages five pages 10 pages 25 pages getting longer each time and trying to do different things in terms of styles and mechanics yes yeah i mean i do i do have a kind of graphic novel project that that's simmering in the background but i I've done a certain amount of that and I'm still continuing to do some short, shorter pieces because I feel like I've got so much to learn. And I'll definitely, I'll definitely look at the stuff that I like and assess what I need to improve about mine and then set myself that task for the next project. So, yeah, the thing I'm working on at the moment is all about page design. And also the, another thing that occurred to me about comics is that even there's so many decisions to make even with the things like you know, whether you outline panels, whether you outline speech bubbles and the sort of grammar of it, whether you have thought bubbles or not, all these kind of things doesn't come into kind of children's illustration. <laughs> sort of, or it can do, but um, there's just an awful lot there that every time you sit down to do a story, you find yourself spending hours thinking, am I going to draw boxes around these panels or is it <laughs> colour? Can I just not, can I leave that off? It's all sorts of considerations. Yeah, your point about thought bubbles is very interesting because they're something that essentially has gone out of fashion a mm. lot in, in comics and been replaced largely by the caption boxes, which mm. to me always gives a feeling of a voiceover and the narrator being a bit more distant from the piece, whereas the yeah. thought bubble seems more intimate, seems more direct because it's linked directly to the character. Yeah, yeah, and the the five-page story I'm working on has a lot of conversations over the phone as well, so deciding how you're going to depict that is a whole other thing, so... So as you say, it's been a lot of diary comics and autobiographical stuff. Is that the sort of comics you enjoy? Yeah, it's definitely the, the stuff that I'm drawn to creating, and it's also what I enjoy reading, um, and I'd love to do some fiction at some point, but I'm... Um, at the moment kind of working on my writing skills because I feel like that's quite a quite a difficult thing to do well write fiction but I definitely I love reading diary comics and autobio stuff and it's it's a whole kind of skill in itself so I've been doing a lot of reading lately on 
how to write longer pieces versus short pieces, how to do autobiographical stuff well so that it's not just kind of, you know, I, I did this and I went here and then this happened, <laughs> so that you can have something more interesting going on. Um, and it is a tricky, it's a tricky thing to do, to do it well. And again, by, by doing autobiographical comics and travel comics, it does feel like you're allowing yourself a chance to develop because you've got material there already. So it's not a case of having to generate the material, then work out how you're going to present it. You've, yeah. you've almost sort of skipped past that initial part. As you say, you're looking to do fiction at some point. But I think it's, it's a very smart move to start off by going... I'm going to write about literally what I know and what's happened just because it saves me a whole stage of yeah. production. I mean, it, it does create its own issues in that you have to decide how you're going to make it interesting and the fact, you know, not just... You can't just put in stuff, you know, because it happened. There has to be a reason. You have to try and structure it as if it was fiction um, so that it's interesting to read. There's a dramatic sense to and it. And well. it has other issues too, like if you're writing about people that you know, that can have its um, complications... And how much you're going to reveal of yourself. There's a a whole intimacy thing that isn't a consideration in in fiction because everyone's masked. Yes, yeah. Someone said to me uh, quite recently, the stuff that you would kind of immediately hope that no one would ever know about you is probably the stuff that people would find the most interesting. So considering putting really personal things into it is quite, quite tricky. But it's true that that's the stuff that's compelling to read, so... So you're using the various pieces to work on different aspects of mechanics. Yeah. And you were saying about doing research and development in terms of your writing skills. What sort of form has that taken? Just working my way through uh, books on writing. <laughs> I read a big a big book on screenwriting, uh, which doesn't necessarily, you know, every single aspect of it doesn't come into play, but it's, it's quite useful for the longer piece, the graphic novel idea. And then I've got shorter things about specifically about writing memoir and autobio that I've been looking through to try and figure out how to do that well I'm not so much one for taking classes and things I quite like doing it by myself (laughs) just tell for everything just antisocial basically (laughs) so I quite like yeah just gathering resources and working through them and kind of setting myself tasks um I've got an idea for a I'd like to do a regular zine that I would put out probably for four to six times a year or something um, that would be full of short pieces and, and odds and ends. And that would, I think that would be a good way to kind of um, use short pieces to experiment with different aspects of writing and things. So that's something that I'm working on at the moment. Are there any books that you've read in terms of your research that you would recommend, that you've enjoyed particularly or found particularly valuable? There's there's one book which is a, a the screenwriting book I read is, is called Story by Robert McKee. And that's... That's a really good one. It goes into a huge amount of depth on every aspect of kind of writing longer pieces. And what was quite interesting to me when I was working through that was that I'd, I had a meeting with, with Ricky from uh, Avery Hill, who had a look at some of my graphic novel work in progress, very tactfully pointed out that I was making some kind of classic errors, really basic errors with my writing. And that made me kind of go away and think, right, I can't just always... Because up till then, I'd always kind of said to people, oh, I'm not really a writer, I'm just, I'm an illustrator, but I'm trying to do a bit of writing. And I thought, no, I need to do it properly <laughs> to find out what I'm doing wrong. So lots of the things that he pointed out in my graphic novel extract that I gave him were kind of in that, that book story, <laughs> Robert McKee's book, as basic kind of beginner <laughs> So that was quite humiliating to find that. But, it, you know, it's important to find out what you're doing wrong and try and 
Also, is there value in that you're making the right mistakes? Does that make sense? Do you know what I mean? It's like, you're not making mistakes that are off the chart so much. That's so strange. That Robert hasn't anticipated them at any point. Yes, yeah. And he does He does sort of warn about, you know, when you when you start out, you can kind of kid yourself that you're, you're, you're kind of using your instinct and you're writing instinctually and stuff. And he says that that often means that you're just doing it badly. So I'm reinventing the form. It <laughs> yeah, doesn't need exactly. reinvent, just, just do the form. Yeah. So it's that was that was a particularly useful one. I'm also uh, reading one that's about um, also bio. I think it's called Naked Drunken Writing, and it's about someone who writes short pieces for magazines. So it's not necessarily the type of writing that <laughs> that excites me. But her her points and the exercises she brings up are really kind of useful if you're interested in that kind of work and about how to take stuff that's based in your experience and make it interesting to a reader. And not just put in everything that happened, <laughs> like it's just an account of something that happened, how to give it an angle and have some kind of conclusion. But I think similar to, let's say, your background not being in comics, reading about writing in other mediums, can, uh, that you're, you're going to bring in ideas and principles, not necessarily the mechanisms from other sources, will only help your comics. If everyone's reading the same ten books on how to make comics yeah. and doing all the same things... Yeah, yeah. And I've read the, um, you know, Understanding Comics and Making Camp Comics, Scott McLeod, and those are brilliant, but they, they don't go into very much detail, or so much detail on the writing aspect. And that was just the, the area I felt needed the most work. <laughs> if I was going to be able to do a graphic novel, I just thought I don't want to spend years making a graphic novel if it's not very well written, because that would be a huge waste of time. So I decided to try and work on it. Do you have any idea what sort of length you'd be looking at in terms of the project? I was looking around 300 pages. I'm quite scared of making it long because I'm quite a slow worker, but also it's kind of a, a thing that I've wanted to do for about 10 years, so it would it has to be, you know, long enough to do what I want it to do. Um, and I did I did a 20-page section which was the section I showed to Ricky to get some uh, feedback. And I figured out I could work at a rate of two-thirds of a page a day. I was aiming at a page a day initially, because <laughs> that seems just like a sensible amount that most people say they can do, but I couldn't quite manage it unless it was a really, kind of a really simple page. Yeah, I think I there might be was... a discrepancy between the number of people who say they do a page a day <laughs> and then do a page there, a day. There is that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was, I was quite uh, encouraged by that. I thought if I could keep that up, then that would be a good... That's not colouring it as well, and it would be in colour. So that would be a whole extra thing. But I was quite surprised I managed to do, you know, the best part of a page a day for a while. Your style as an illustrator is very meticulous, very exact, very precise and exquisite and beautiful. But as you say, not practical in terms of comics no. production. So <laughs> no. what did you learn in terms of adapting your style for comics and what sort of techniques have you incorporated or, or left out to speed up your, your process? Well, um, even before I kind of decided to, to give uh, children's books a break and move into comics for a while, um, I was kind of moving towards digital colouring over... I used to work in watercolour, <laughs> which is quite a yeah, difficult uh, technique. Um, and that, has, that does help to speed that up. But I'm also working on trying to just draw more spontaneously and leave some rough edges because I th just think it, it has more energy that way. I enjoy seeing other people's work that's quite, you know, that's less polished than the, the stuff I was doing previously. The five-page story I'm working on, I might keep some of the kind of 
very rough initial thumbnails that I did and just actually leave those in because like some of them are quite nice as they are and the, I showed that to some people for feedback too and they had the same reaction they were saying I wouldn't do too much more to it which is quite it's quite good so it's just a case of trying to loosen up a bit with the drawing both for practical reasons and because I think it adds energy <laughs> yes energy yeah I heard that a lot from from comics people that were kind of giving me advice they were saying yeah try and embrace that so my, my tendency is always to put in loads of detail and shading and to finish things off so that they're really kind of smooth. So I'm working on just not doing that. <laughs> and sometimes it helps if I use a really kind of thick pencil. It sounds really silly, but I've got a pencil, a mechanical pencil that's the lead is quite thick. And if I use that as opposed to a really finely sharpened pencil, that forces me to just do shapes. It removes the temptation to <laughs> There's cross no hatch way I can... for an hour. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had to, even early on doing kids' books, I had to encourage myself to do the initial thumbnails really, really roughly so that I could focus on shapes overall rather than getting... I would immediately go in and start drawing the facial expression, which is... If <laughs> <laughs> you haven't even planned the rest of the illustration, that's a bit pointless. Maybe they're not going to be happy all the way through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I read an interview where you said a big realisation for you about working in comics was the fact that you don't have to ink your work. Yes, that was something that yeah. put you off for a while. Yeah, it did. Yeah, early on I did think that comics were all inked. <laughs> um, I don't know if it was last year working on Tiny Pencil, which is a, an anthology all about graphite art, that I just came across more artists working in pencil, or whether there just are more. I think possibly that the fact that printing and scanning technologies improved has made it easier to reproduce pencil artwork well, because if you do it badly, you don't have any of the kind of subtleties. Um, it's hard to reproduce that. So I think, I think more and more people are using pencil for comics, and that was really exciting to me because I've never been interested in inking. I used to, um, I used to draw with biros at school because I had a teacher that was really into that because you can use it exactly like a pencil, you can shade, and if you use it very lightly, you can get a tiny kind of faint line, so it's just like using a pencil. So if I ever had to do anything, like I used to do drawings for the yearbook at school, and I used to do them in biro because I thought, like, it has to be an ink. Um, <laughs> So now, yeah, now I'm relieved to find that you can just use pencil, and that's that's good because that's what I enjoy. As you say, tiny pencil is a showcase for artists to work in pencil, but it does seem to have come round at a time when more books than ever are coming out in pen in a way that we've never really seen before. Works like a gigantic beard that was evil, yeah, which you know is a, a massively long piece done entirely in pencil, which I've never really seen the like of before. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really exciting. Yeah, that was just a real revelation to me because I thought, right, my whole theory of comics was just completely wrong. <laughs> I also, when I when I first got into illustration, I would I was interested in comics, but I put it aside because I I was aware of the amount of how labour intensive it is and the amount of work that has to go into them and I couldn't see how anyone ever finished anything <laughs> and I kind of would look at kids books and think this is 24 pages you know 36 pages or whatever I could see myself finishing this <laughs> but I can't see myself doing a graphic novel but now that you've now that I've had the discipline and the practice of, of quite a few years working kids books to deadlines I know that I can finish stuff so now I'm coming back to it. In terms of your use of colour as well with the the Scotland comic was it very deliberate use of one particular colour to sort of yes yeah that was deliberate that was something again that I started to experiment with before I finished doing kids book work was limiting my colours because 
I realised that I, I absolutely love colour and I will throw lots of colours at things as my, my first instinct. And I noticed that sometimes when I saw my work printed by publishers that they would have like turned down the saturation of the image or whatever and I would think, oh, they, they didn't want it quite that bright. And that was a shame to me because I thought for kids' books, surely that's the thing where you can use loads of colour. But um, I also just started to appreciate people's work more that I was seeing online when they used just a, a limited palette and stuff. So I tried to tried to do that sort of thing. And we did the, the second issue of Tiny Pencil we did with kind of spot colours. So we did three mini zines and each one had sort of the, the grey of the graphite and one colour. So that was another fun kind of experiment with that sort of thing. But yeah, I enjoyed that with the Scotland comic. Because I could have done the sort of blue background that I used and one other colour, but I thought, why don't I just stick with just the blue and nothing else? And that was quite a good exercise as well. Um, I think when I was working in kids' books and I was working with watercolour, I was often quite kind of led by the medium itself. And I was quite obsessed with how beautiful the pigments looked in their kind of unadulterated form because <laughs> you have these little pans and, and you dip you dip the water in and it, it comes out just so beautiful like a cobalt blue or something so I would really just use the colours as they were and I would kind of mix I would spend a lot of time mixing but quite often I would be throwing in these beautiful kind of undiluted pigments just because I thought they were so gorgeous but I realised that it was quite it was possibly lacking subtlety <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I tried to work on, yeah, it's nice if you have one kind of maybe really strong colour and then some other more muted ones that really help to bring that out rather than having <laughs> hundreds of... So colour balance in terms of tone as well as yeah. placing the colours yeah, on the page. Yeah, exactly. So talk us through the typical process of you doing a page of comics. How would you go around about assembling the page? I tend to sort of start with very, very rough thumbnails where I just plan what's going to be in each panel and occasionally won't even draw anything. It'll just say what, what the words are and what's, what it's going to show. But if, if I have a strong idea about a particular one, I'll do a really, really fast little thing. And then I'll do a kind of um, slightly more detailed, rough. Uh, but I try and work as small as possible to, to again, limit myself from <laughs> putting loads of details in. So the, the story I'm doing at the moment is, is, I think, 12 panels a page. So they're actually quite small panels to be printed at A4, they're quite small panels already, which is why I'm, I'm thinking I might be able to use some of the actual thumbnails in the final art, because they're already quite small. But if it's going to be sort of blown up at all, I'll scan in the thumbnails, kind of move stuff around in Photoshop a lot, make adjustments. Quite often I need to adjust figures, so I need to kind of make the head smaller or whatever I've, whatever I've done wrong with the proportions, or I'll think this panel just needs to be flipped left to right because quite often I'll, I'll realise that something will work much better the other way around. So I do lots of tweaking in Photoshop. So you're using um, Photoshop as a sort of compositional tool rather yes. than just cleaning up lines and... Yeah, I'll use it to clean up lines as well. But I do initially play around a lot with moving things around just to see if there's anything that would work better differently. And I'll do, I'll do speech bubbles and lettering separately. And then I'll do the final art, which now I'm trying to keep more and more kind of rough and spontaneous, scan that in, tidy it up. And I'm quite obsessive about cleaning it up as well in Photoshop, so that's possibly another thing where I should <laughs> try and stop doing that quite so much and embrace kind of errors. I really admire artists that can do that, but I'm a bit obsessive, so 
I tend to tidy everything up and correct everything and move, you know, a mouth like a one pixel to the left, <laughs> which can make it can make quite a big difference to the expression. But I, yeah, I should probably train myself out of doing that. And then I'll I'll just colour it in Photoshop if it's going to be in colour. So I'll just add different layers of colours. Have the pencil drawing as a transparent layer on the top, and then I try and because if I have this kind of textured pencil on one layer. It looks a bit odd if the if the digital colour is really flat, so I try and add some texture into that if there's any large areas that look kind of jarring because they're very, very flat. I'll add in sort of um, pencil texture using the blending modes in Photoshop, which can kind of blend it in quite subtly. So that's what I'm playing around with at the moment. That's a tricky thing because I like very flat digital coloured artwork, but it doesn't necessarily sit well with pencil line. <laughs> so I need to find, I'm trying to find the balance where it's, it looks kind of pencily and textured, but with the digital colour as well. And working in digital colour has been quite a revelation, being able to adjust the saturation and play around with that stuff. Whereas with watercolour, once it's on the page, there's absolutely nothing you can do <laughs> unless you start again, really. So yeah, being able to once it's all in there, play it, tweak the colours and the levels of different layers and play around with it, that's... Just fully true. saturate the cobalt blue. Just <laughs> yeah. have it bleeding through the page. <laughs> that should be my signature in every <laughs> in everything I do. I read a blog post where you talked about uh, your process and composition and you had a really interesting point about annotating your thumbnails. You'd like leave notes for yourself in, uh, in terms of perspective and proportion. Things yeah. to adjust later on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that's that's quite um, obsessive and control freaky um, because I, I always think oh, I might forget I might forget to do this I need to write it down and then and then depending on how long the piece is I can end up with just mountains of scraps of paper with notes written to myself <laughs> so, yeah but yeah it's good to to as you spot the the thing that you want to tweak to just make a note of it um, quite often with figures yeah things need adjusting um, proportions and. And the perspective of scenes is something that you can very easily just, you know, grab a bit of the drawing in Photoshop, lasso it and change the, distort it so that the perspective is much better than it was. And in terms of materials, obviously pencils, but do you want to go into detail in terms of particular pencils that you use in particular models and ranges? Yes, I, I feel like I was more, it's not so much interesting with the pencils. When I was using watercolour, I was very... Um, particular about what paper I liked and things because there are certain uh, papers that are, that are very good. Um, What's your favourite paper for watercolour? Um, it was Fabriano hot pressed watercolour paper because I used a combination of coloured pencil and watercolour I would do the basic washes in watercolour and draw on the top with coloured pencil. A lot of watercolour paper had too much uh, tooth it was a bit too rough even the very smooth ones which is what hot pressed paper is would have too much texture so that when I came to the colour bit it would be like drawing on sandpaper or something. So Fabriano I found was the smoothest of the smooth papers and I liked to use really heavyweight paper because then you didn't have to stretch it. Um, the disadvantage of that is you can't light box anything because it's too thick so I would have to kind of transfer drawings with tracing paper which is a bit of a, a faff. <laughs> that would just add a whole other you know, day of work transferring 24 <laughs> drawings by tracing them. So, but when I'm just working with pencil, I have a few favourite ones. I like Faber-Castell pencils, Mars Lumograph. I like pencils that are soft, so you can get good darks. And I tend to just use a 3B and that's it, unless I'm doing something where the 
the original art needs to have some really dark areas and then I'll use a softer one again for certain areas. But otherwise, if it's going to be scanned and the level's adjusted anyway, you can kind of darken bits in Photoshop afterwards. So I just use the one, the one pencil. And I draw on um, just really cheap printer paper because it's really smooth. And I find cartridge paper and stuff, even if it's kind of smooth, it has too much texture. So, and also it's very cheap, so <laughs> it's the best of both worlds, really. In terms of watercolours, was there a particular brand you used there? I used to use Winsor & Newton Artists Quality. I think with watercolour, if you use cheap ones, you're always going <laughs> to struggle, unless, you, unless your work is quite kind of rough, intentionally. Um, but a lot of people that find it really difficult to get into watercolour if they actually use, you know, good quality paint, it's like a revelation. <laughs> and sable, the Kalinsky sable brushes, the best kind. <laughs> They're just very, very absorbent. They hold a massive amount of water, but they, they retain a kind of really sharp point at the end. So they're brilliant. So yeah, I think sometimes people go into watercolour and they've got cheap brushes and paint and cheap paper and they just <laughs> think this is horrible. <laughs> but yeah, it makes a big difference if you use good quality materials. But luckily for me now, luckily for my wallet, I'm just using a pencil. <laughs> I don't have to spend quite so much. Another box materials. of free beans and you're sorted. <laughs> Putty rubber, that's the one other thing I can't do without because that's a kind of shapeable eraser so you can do very fine kind of pulling out of the graphite once it's on the page. Do you have studio space or do you work from home? Uh, I work from home but I have got a room to myself um, which I got um, about a year and a half ago and that was brilliant, <laughs> that made a huge difference because <laughs> um, I used to just work in the living room of a shared house <laughs> with a bunch of you know, housemates that would come home at five o'clock and I'd have to put everything away. So now I've got, I've got a whole room and it's brilliant, especially doing, you know, self-publishing stuff and the work on Tiny Pencil I did, I would have a massive amount of just stuff in there, stock and packaging materials <laughs> and things like that. Um, so it was good to have enough room to organise that properly. So yeah, I really like working from home. I'm not that interested in, you know... I know a lot of people love having a studio space outside of the house, but I quite like being <laughs> I like being able to work whatever hours I want and not have to think about getting there and getting home. Um, and I work well when I'm left alone as well. Not everybody does, but I get a lot done that way. seems to suit me. <laughs> Could you describe the setup you've got in your, your space? Um, yeah, I don't work at a desk. <laughs> I work in an armchair. <laughs> uh, with a like rolled doll. <laughs> yeah, fine. exactly. Uh, with a coffee table with my laptop on it. Because basically I work quite small, usually A4 size, um, and I'm perfectly happy just with, you know, a board on my lap and a cushion or something, and, and that's fine. I think people that work on larger pieces of paper need to work at a desk, but for, for my work it's, it's fine, and I like being really comfortable. I think it's quite important to feel comfortable in the space. So I've just got loads of, loads of books and comics and stuff around me, and I sometimes print out inspirations and stick them on the wall. Um, I've got um, a fantastic cutting table for large sheets of paper, which my boyfriend constructed out of an old chest of drawers, <laughs> which was amazing because I would, I would have to kind of get down on my hands and knees and cut paper on the floor if I was using watercolour paper that comes in enormous sheets. So yeah, that stores, that's got several drawers with large sheets of paper and cutting mats on the top. And uh, last Christmas I got a pegboard for all my tools and things, which <laughs> is a really nerdy thing, but um, 
that was the most exciting thing that happened <laughs> in my studio. So that's above the cutting table. That's got all the tools that I use. All sorts of things like uh, rubber stamps and ink pads and, yeah, just stuff that I use all the time for mailing out orders and things like that. If you have an actual set space for doing that that's not the same desk that you're drawing on, that's quite handy, I think. And then I've got a printer scanner. I've got quite a large printer. It prints up to A3. So I've got that in one corner where I can scan and print stuff. Because quite often I'll do, you know, the thumbnails of something, scan them, print them out at a larger size, you know, scan again, print. I'll do that several times over. So it's quite nice that that's all set up properly. (laughs) You also self-publish your own work as well and do your own production in terms of of making up the books. Do you want to talk us through the mechanism of that? Yeah, um, I think it's quite useful for people to do that just to get an idea of what's involved in the production process (laughs) and I kind of got into it almost by accident by the first book that I self-published was a a collaboration with a a work friend of mine who just gave me this kind of short story kind of surreal story that was almost like a poem and said do you want to do anything with this (laughs) so I did a bunch of illustrations based on it and I started to show them online as I was doing them And people started to really respond to them and comment a lot and ask me what they were for and things. So eventually the two of us got together and decided we should make it into a book. And she was quite keen on the idea of doing a handmade book. And I got, I kind of got into this stuff via artists' books more than comics initially, where they're kind of the focus is on the quality of the materials and the the paper and the binding and stuff. So because we wanted to, because it was quite a kind of special looking thing we wanted to make a really nice kind of product so we we did lots of stuff researching paper and then got quite obsessed with that and different methods of binding and things and then just decided to to do it all ourselves we got the internal pages printed in black and white and then I printed all of the covers at home on this kind of textured almost like watercolor paper stuff but that then meant that I had to cut out and score (laughs) 300 covers (laughs) and then hand-sew them. Me and Marsha, who wrote the story with me, we hand-sewed every issue. Um, But it's it's a really good education, really good to think about the materials. Um, I discovered an amazing place in Brixton, which is a paper wholesaler, where you can go in and and it's just really exciting to a paper nerd to see all these (laughs) papers that you know are really expensive, these watercolour papers in such massive kind of towers and they have all sorts of printing paper as well and just a little office upstairs where you can wander in and ask them about paper so I would go and just come away with hundreds of scraps they're quite good at advising you and giving you bits to take away and I would send off to paper distributors for samples as well I've got really into paper uh, but that that came in very handy with tiny pencil as well because I think Amber was kind of the creative genius behind that and I was more the practical tech. <laughs> per- yeah tech person um, I did the layouts and stuff, the InDesign, which I didn't know how to use, I had to learn. Um, but yeah, I had experience of the printing side, of working with printers um, and paper and things, so that was quite useful. Um, it's also quite interesting to give you a perspective on marketing and selling the stuff. Because that first book I did, which was called Five with my friend Marsha, we designed it to have a sort of... A belly band around the book which was a, made of tracing paper and it looked really beautiful but that meant that the books were kind of sealed close 
and so that was fine selling it online you know you can have photos of it and stuff and selling it at fairs you can have it there and you could show it to people and you can have a display copy but when I started taking it around shops I realized this is this is an issue for the shops because you're asking shops to write one off essentially (laughs) well I did end up giving each shop one free copy as a display copy um, so, but the, all these things, and it also the book came with a little free bookmark, and I was thinking that's going to fall out <laughs> in the shop. So, all these things where you think actually there's a reason why books have a certain format usually. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it depends what you want to do with it, but it does make you think. You know, a lot of a lot of the big publishers make decisions based on you know how shops display books, and there's kind of a reason for it. <laughs> Because they're never really having to consider about sending things out themselves. No. They could do a lot more. You're absolutely right in terms of... Yeah, if they were distributing it by themselves. But, yeah, you have to think about this is going to be in a shop. You can't expect the person in the shop to be explaining what it is to each customer that comes. <laughs> so things like that, yeah. Um, it's exciting to be able to do things that are, you know a bit more unusual but then uh, you realize that you're actually creating limitations in what you can do with it it was quite exciting to get it stopped in shops initially as well my first book because I had no experience of that and I just walked into a bunch of places which was terrifying <laughs> including gosh when it was over by the museum um, did we take some I wouldn't yes. have been it good good correct yes I was very relieved about that <laughs> but yeah that was quite an experience good practice for just kind of dealing with um, stockists and things as well. So all that stuff is very useful to know, I think, if you're into comics. There's a lot you can do by yourself, and it's quite good to kind of experience all aspects of book production and things just to kind of learn about it. So I was quite glad I did it by accident (laughs) initially. (laughs) (laughs) But you say as well that perspective of uh, understanding why shops are doing this, why publishers are doing that. It just mm. gives you a more well-rounded view on the industry, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Made me understand a lot more about the publishing industry and why things were as they were. <laughs> do you keep sketchbooks? I, I do draw in sketchbooks when I'm on holiday because I've always found travelling is the, the thing that I enjoy drawing from life the most. Um, I don't really enjoy drawing in pubs and things when people are looking over your shoulder. <laughs> I like to, if I'm, you know, travelling somewhere, I'm quite inspired by seeing new places and find a really kind of sheltered spot where I can draw from, where people aren't going to loom over me. Well, also, that's you drawing in the time you'd be drawing for work at home. Yes, So it's not true. doing additional drawing, it's just uh, transferring yeah. what the drawing's for. Yeah, and I was thinking with my... my zine idea that I'm planning my regular zine that I'd like to do I might have I might let myself have one page in each one that's a kind of observational drawing or something just as a nod to that how much I used to enjoy doing (laughs) thanks for joining us Katrina no problem where can people see your work online my website is katrinachapman.com and it's a funny spelling so I'll spell it (laughs) so k-a-t-r-i-o-n-a chapman.com and I'm on Twitter at Kat Chapman, K-A-T. Process is part of the Holdfast Network. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for other podcasts you might enjoy.